And if you uh, open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We call it the Jerry Passage. <laughs> First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 15 through 17. So this is the word of our Lord. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It's interesting that in the book of 1 Thessalonians, both uh, there's these two sections on eschatology, well, both 1 and Thessalonians are called uh, the eschatological epistles because so much of it is about eschatology. But these two sections are more explicit. And uh, of 13 through 18 of chapter 4 is one section, and then... Uh, chapter 5, 1 through 11 is another section. And both of these sections finish with the exhortation to use these words to encourage one another. And yet, I think there's more fights in the church about these passages than about anything else. But, but the Holy Spirit gave these passages to us for our encouragement. The, the tribulation, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the righteous are closely related in the scriptures. They seem to always be portrayed as one event. But about 140 years ago, a new idea was developed to, developed to relate the return of Christ to the resurrection of believers. Decoupling it, detaching it from the tribulation. And that idea became known as the rapture. Uh, that's how it uh, came to be uh, known. There uh, all kinds of ideas were, were made out of it. Uh, uh, all kinds of urban legend were created. Uh, some people said that the Boeing included in their manual that if a pilot is a Christian, she always have an atheist co-pilot in case the rapture that, that never happened. But, but these are all urban legends, that uh, myths that were created around this idea of the rapture. Uh, the word rapture itself means carrying off. Uh, it's often used in theology to mean a secret return of Christ and a secret removal from the earth of all believers prior to the Great Tribulation. So uh, people who, who hold to this idea of this rapture then would say that there is, a, uh, there is a first coming of Jesus, that's when he died on the cross and rose again, and then there is second coming 2A, so this second coming A and second coming B. Second coming A, he comes, collects the righteous, 
there's a period of tribulation of seven years, second coming B, then he comes back and touches the ground on earth. And so that's the, how this view sees that. And this doctrine is seen in texts like what saw last week, Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41, where it says, uh, one's going to be in, two are going to be in the field, one are going to be taken, two are going to be grinding, one's going to be taken. They see that in that, uh, see this teaching in texts like that. But the ultimate passage for the rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 that we just read here. Uh, in my research, that's the one that is mostly quoted in defense of the pre-tribulational secret rapture of the church. Now, there are some secondary things that say, oh, in the book of Revelation, the word church is not used from chapters 4 on, only the first three chapters. That doesn't say much. Uh, there is a claim that God promises to not put his church to suffering. Um, I'll show you that that's a false claim in a moment, if you get there. That as, as a matter of fact, God promises the opposite. Uh, that toils and trials and struggles and suffering will be a constant uh, presence in the life of the church and the life of the believer. But this is a passage that uh, most, uh, in my research, most writers would anchor this idea of the, the tribulation or the uh, rapture here. And the English translation of this passage may give the impression that the saints are taken up and that's it, right? Because it doesn't, never mentions Jesus actually coming all the way down to earth, as they say, and so on. But the original language does not allow for that interpretation. The, the Greek behind the passage does not allow for that interpretation. If you look in your Bible and you look at verse um, 17, it says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Stop here. So what is, what is Paul describing here? So Christ returns. Those that are dead in Christ will be risen. Their resurrection bodies will be given to them. Their souls will be reunited to their bodies. Following that, then those that are alive and believing at the time also will be transformed and will meet the Lord. Right? That's what um, it's teaching here. The key for the understanding of this passage is the word meet. M-E-E-T. As men, we think that meet, M-E-A-T, is the key for everything else. But for the understanding of this passage, the M-E-E-T word, the, this, this word, translated meet, was used of the people of a town going out of the town to meet a dignitary, somebody important, a ruler. So they'll be in town, the ruler's coming, the watchman says... The important person's coming. Everybody of town leave town, go meet them. And then they would escort them back into town. They wouldn't just hang out out there for a period waiting for something. They would welcome, it would be the welcoming committee, let's say. That's what this word meet was used. They would go out, meet them, and then return with him to the town without any interval of time there. Uh, a big cache of, of 
papyri, papyri was found in Egypt not too long ago in the 20th century, and it became obvious that that's how this word was used in common Greek of the first century. That's how people understood it. And we find that uh, we find examples of this word being used exactly like that, or of this event in the scriptures. For example, oh, that's our passage. In, in John 12, this is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet, that's the same word, to meet him, and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And then what did they do? They went outside, they met him, and what else? What was next? They brought him back to town. Remember, it was the palms, uh, branches, and they, they went there with the purpose of escorting him into Jerusalem to make him what? King. So it wasn't a secret meeting outside and hanging out outside. It was a per- going to meet him and bring him back. Uh, turn to Matthew 25 for a second. Keep your finger there in 1 Thessalonians and turn to Matthew 25. Because we have another example of this word being used exactly like that and demonstrates that's what Paul meant by it. In Matthew 25... Starting at verse 1, we have the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins. So starting in verse 1, says, then the, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. All right, let's stop here for a second. Let's identify who the characters in this story is. Who is the bridegroom? Christ. Who are the ten virgins? There will be too, too few, Louis, to be the apostles. Is the visible church. Is the church of Jesus Christ on earth. Right now, who are the five one that took the oil, the extra oil? What? I can't. I, I can see a lot of mouths moving, but not nothing. And I see Jim laughing, so I did say something. <laughs> so, who are the five who did not? Who took extra oil with them? They are the believers in the church. And then the five who didn't are the unbelievers. Remember the parable of the wheat and the tear? That in the church, as long as, in the visible church, as long as the Lord tarries, there will be a mixed multitude in the church. So there will be some that are true believers and some who think, look like and even think they're true believers that are not. So those are the characters here in the story. And then the king goes away, right? The bridegroom goes away and is going to come back. So verse 6. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. That's our word again. That's, that's not a regular word for meet. It's a specific word for meet. The same one used in 1 Thessalonians and in John 12. The, and notice that's not a secret. All the ten, both the 
one with extra oil and the one without the extra oil heard the call. They knew the bridegroom is coming. It was not a secret. Well, not, it wasn't just the ones with oil that heard the call. Okay? That's important to eliminate the idea of a secret coming of Jesus Christ. Continuing in verse verse 7, Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some oil of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No less there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him. To the wedding and the door was shut. So what's the picture here? The, the, all the virgins are in this location. The bridegroom is somewhere else. The bridegroom comes, the virgins meet him and stay, they come back to the location where they were prior to celebrate the wedding. They don't go somewhere else with the bridegroom. They return to where they were waiting for the bridegroom. When the five without the oil go get oil and come back, they come back to the location where they were while waiting for the bridegroom and they're not allowed anymore. So it's, it's not as... Everybody, believer or non-believer, in this parable hears the call. The, the non-believer realizes that's Christ coming and they don't have what it takes, right? It's not a secret to them. And they meet Christ and come back to where they are. So it's not a secret and it's not something that happens... Um, um, by staying out there in some other place than the place where they first were when they heard that the bridegroom was coming. So this text, 1 Thessalonians 5, 15-17, teaches that when Christ returns, we'll meet Him in the air and come back with Him to the earth to and in my, in my view, to establish then his millennial kingdom at that point. Um, this, up to those last few words, as far as establish the millennium kingdom, uh, pretty much every reformed position agrees with that. With all that I've said, except for the last few words there. So this is a common teaching, the reformed position, uh, be, so we'll continue from here. Any questions so far? Jerry? Does that take place then, uh, the, in your opinion, at the beginning of the millennium? It takes place as after the tribulation, okay. as the millennium kingdom will be established. It's the, so stab, it's the beginning. beginning, yeah. Yes. Any other questions? All right. There's another problem with this doctrine of the rapture. Nowhere in the Bible the return of Christ is described as happening in several stages. You never find it Christ comings again or Christ returns. It's, it's always a singular event. And nowhere in the Bible is thought to, that it is secret. As a matter of fact, it's thought the opposite that this event is not going to be a secret event. Um, look at, uh, you have it open to 25, right? Matthew 25 still. Look at uh, Matthew 24. Look at, start in verse 3. 
Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when all these things will tell when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the end of the age. The disciples are asking, Tell us how how it's gonna happen. Tell us the signs. And Jesus didn't say, It's secret, not gonna tell you. Actually, he goes on to describe signs. Look at verse 27 of chapter 24. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also the coming of the Son of Man be. It's, it's equated with this magnificent lightning s- storm that's seen across the entire sky, as far as the east is from the west. So it just flashes around the entire sky. That doesn't get, give you a feeling of secret. Here, look at verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also be the coming of the Son of Man. Remember the days of Noah? Was there a sign that that was going to happen? Yes. It's called rain and flood and everybody dying. That's, that's, there was no secret there either. Look at verse 39. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So all so also be the coming of the Son of Man. That's the idea that the people knew that that was what God was talking about when they're all dying there. Look at also in 1 Thessalonians 3.13. It's on the screen. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but you can. Uh, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the singular coming of our Lord Jesus Christ how? With all the saints. That is not a secret event. It's all the saints. Perhaps billions of people coming in bodily form, not, secret, not, not, not souls, but in bodily form, right? The, the resurrection. There. Uh, in 1 John 2.28, And now little children abide in him, and when he appears, and this is the word for be, to, to manifest, to make himself known, it's not like, the person kind of sneaking behind you just to surprise you. That's not the appearing that's talking about here. It's a major showing there. We may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Second Peter 3.12 Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. The day of the coming of God... Who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is not a secret event. One more. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed from whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Again, not a, not, it doesn't, you don't have feelings of ideas of secret here. It is a very public even the brightness of the come is enough to destroy the lawless ones. Any questions so far? Jerry? Just one more. Um, you can have as many as you want, man. <laughs> They'll come as I think of yeah. uh, So, the Old Testament saints, will that be included with 
all of the saints return. So the question is, at the resurrection, right? That's what you're asking. Will the Old Testament saints be risen at that, raised at that time? The answer is yes. Everyone who's ever put their faith in the Messiah at that point will be raised. That's what I mean by it's not a couple of people that we're talking about. When it says he's coming over all his saints, it's, it's a, a multitude. So where did the term in the bosom of Abraham come from? A lot of people... From uh, Luke 16, where it says that Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom uh, and the rich man is in hell, right? So it's just another term for heaven. Uh, as I understand it, because when you compare to other terms used for heaven, what we call heaven, uh, the they're, they're all synonymous. There, the things that are happening in Abraham's bosoms, the things that are happening in what we would call heaven, as well. And you see the contrast not between some temporary place where the wicked go; it's a permanent place where the wicked go. So there is a this. We, we think the Abraham bosom is. As we've seen earlier in this series, the word heaven in the Bible is not used like we use it today. We use the word heaven primarily to mean when we die and we believe in Jesus, we go to heaven. That's, that's a Christian use. That's not a biblical use of the word heaven. Uh, heaven is used usually for the eternal state in the Bible, where we are going to be forever in our body and soul in the presence of Christ. Right? Any other questions before we continue? So these passages are more easily understood if they are seen. If you, if you want to use the term rapture as a rapture happening after the tribulation, at the coming of Jesus Christ with the resurrected saints. I wanted to talk, tell you that God has never promised a life of ease to the church. Because that's one of the arguments that says that the church will be raptured before God pours His wrath upon the nations in the tribulation uh, to be spared from experiencing that wrath. It is proper to say that God protects His church. It is not proper to say that God spares His church from suffering. In, uh, when God poured out His wrath upon the world in the flood, did He remove from the world the believers of the time? No. He protected them, put them in an ark. But think with me for a moment. Here are 14 months in the confined space with your family. <laughs> and every single animal in the world. With one window. And these animals are doing what animals do on a daily basis. And the, it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a Borg cube. But whatever it is, that, what's, what's the proper term? Mr. Hoy, you're a math teacher. Three-dimensional rectangle. No. Huh? It's not a prism either. It's only for... Forget it. A three-dimensional rectangle. Yes, it's not a prism because prism has several sides, more than the one. Anyway, it's irrelevant. I should not have gone in that... Uh, yeah, in that... Uh, um, so, anyway, where was it? Oh, it, it, it didn't sink, but it was not a transatlantic boat, or ship. The waters are coming, the waves are going, it's hitting the waves, it's, it's rocking. It's not a pleasant place to be. So, yes, they, did they die in the flood? No. Were they protected? Yes. Did they suffer through the flood? Yes. 
What is the one event the New Testament equates the tribulation to? The flood. That's the one event. So, from the, from the very beginning, as God is pouring His wrath upon the nations, the church suffers through that. And not even that, when God was pouring His wrath upon the church in the Old Testament, upon Israel, and took Israel captive, were the faithful ones left behind to prosper in the land? No. The answer is no. Everybody was taken. And the faithful ones also suffered. Tribulation seems to be what the Christian should expect in his life. Tribulation should be what the Christian should expect in her life. Paul says, and this, he, he's speaking to the elders. So we, are, we're, we can assume that these were regenerate men, right? I think it's a good, these are Christian elders, and he's speaking to them in Acts 14. He says, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. He's not talking about that initial entering when you, be, when you get saved, when you regenerate it, but the continued pursuit of the kingdom of God happens. There's tribulations, there's suffering that takes place, there are trials as you move towards that ultimate uh, kingdom. And I think, uh, for me, this, the, I'm a, prim, a, historic, a covenantal premillennialist by conviction. The, I'm a very close, uh, postmillennialism is a very close second to me. Uh, there's a lot of common features between historic millennialism and post-millennialism. Amillennialism, for me, is the worst of all, sorry guys, is the saddest, worst, less hope, hopeful, uh, hope-filled position um, that uh, you, you can have. But this is one of the verses that, in a lot of ways, is, is a big stumbling block for me as far as, as holding on to, to post-millennialism. Especially the most current Doug Wilson sort of postmillennialism that teaches everything is going to get socially better, and that the church is going to be so great that there'll be no opposition to the church, and 95% of the world will be saved, and there'll be no, no struggles. Because Paul tells Timothy, one of the very last things he tells Timothy is this: that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So I think even if 95% of society is still a believer, the remaining world, the world is not going to be taken away until Christ comes back, and the remaining world is still going to face us, persecute us. And the remaining sin in us is always going to cause us to, to struggle. So nowhere in the Bible God promises that there's not going to be tribulations for the church of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, suffering for Christ is a sign of God's love and care for His church. Say that in, first, uh, in Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. It says, look what a blessing you get in your suffering for the sake of Christ. And He said, you say, I would say, give me another blessing. <laughs> you can keep that one. But... <laughs> That's not how we should think, right? Uh, Peter says, oops, I guess I don't have that up there. Nope, forget about that one. 
Uh, but uh, Peter says, there we go. Peter says that suffering for the sake of Christ is just being Christ-like. We suffered for our sake. So uh, the, the scriptures promise suffering for the believer in this life as long as there is this life. God never promised to spare his church from tribulation. Any questions before we continue? All right. So now I'm going to diverge from the other Reformed positions, okay? Because I'm going to start talking about the resurrection. And in that, a covenant premillennialist diverges from a non-millennialist and a post-millennialist because uh, historic premillennialism teaches that there are two resurrections separated in time, a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the unrighteous. Uh, post-millennialists put them all at the coming of Jesus Christ, both of them, and all millennialists put them both at the coming of Jesus Christ. A premillennialist, a historic premillennialist, will divide them into two with a space of time in between the millennium millennium kingdom. So the righteous being raised in the beginning, the unrighteous being raised at the end. And that's what we're going to start looking at now. But before I go there, any, any further questions? Okay. This is what our confession says in chapter 32. Uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, th- there's no change to this. So all Presbyterian bodies that believe in, that hold on to Westminster Confession, th- they agree with this. Uh, the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subs- subsistence, immediately return to God, who gave them the souls of, who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being them made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. So this is globally accepted by Presbyterian Bible, even Presbyterian uh, Church. And you can see that last clause, it uh, eliminates the possibility of what? Purgatory, yes. Yeah, once you die, that's it. You either go to the presence of God or you go to hell. There is no uh, uh, a third place there. This is where we start differing here in our, the Bible Presbyterian Church. These two paragraphs were changed in 1938 when we first met as a denomination. And you can see the little 9 and the little 10 at the end of the paragraphs. Uh, and then if you, if you took membership class and you kept the stuff I gave you, then the list of changes is listed there as well. And it says, at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, such living persons as are found in him shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead in Christ shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. So it talks about just the righteous. And then the next paragraph talks about the unrighteous. 
the bodies of the unjust shall after Christ has reigned on earth a thousand years be raised by the power of God to dishonor. So those two paragraphs have been uh, amended to better, uh, as we believe in the Bible, as, uh, as I believe I should say, to better reflect the teachings of the scriptures. As a matter of fact, we may be, as a denomination, the only eschatologically honest denomination in that we actually amended to the, the confession to say what we think the Bible teaches instead of just ignoring it and say, oh, I don't quite believe what the confession says in there. That's not a good position to have, right? You want your confession to be exactly what your confession is, not somebody else's confession. Risa? Anything that is a result of sin, not necessarily your sin, but the presence of sin in the world will be eliminated. Now, people say, oh, what if somebody had a leg cut off? What if, oh, I don't know. Oh, how about the babies? Uh, oh, are they going to be little babies forever? I don't know. So, uh, the Bible doesn't say there. So. Yeah, so pain. Uh, uh, it talks about not having um, the eternal state, not... Every tear being wiped out and no suffering, no pain. Anything that was related to the presence of sin is not going to be there. So when it says not tears wiped out, I don't mean an absolute absence of fluid coming out of your lacrimal whatever, but there's no, no pain. So if there's tears of joy, I don't think that that's contrary to what the Bible teaches. No, Jim will continue being Jim. In heaven, and when we sing, you know, uh, you know yeah, when we sing uh, uh, 500 in heaven, uh, that he'll cry there too, as he does uh, now. So, um, so this is perhaps the major difference between historic premillennialism and the other two reform positions. Perhaps, perhaps is not a good word. This is the major difference. Uh, everything else, as far as the identity of the church, the identity of Israel. Uh, post-tribulational coming of Christ, the, the, the non-secret nature of his coming, all that, the three reform positions hold to. This is going to be the major differences, the two resurrections. And to me, this is the, the selling point, for me personally, of historic premillennialism, is, is the, uh, the, sep- the two separate um, resurrections. We're going to do something that we say, oh, you shouldn't do it, which I think is a bad advice to begin with, because it's part of the Word of God. I want us to turn to Revelation chapter 20. Non-permillionists all say, oh, you can't go there, and I ask why. We're going to chop off the Scriptures and only use parts of it now? With Scriptures interpret itself with Scriptures, but that's not the same as saying we don't look at some parts of the Scriptures. So look at Revelation chapter 20, the forbidden chapter. <laughs> and I said in that I, I was ordained so this next week it will be 21 years 22 years since I was ordained I don't think I've ever taught on Revelation chapter 20 so do what I say don't do what I do I guess on that one right um, 
before we read it, I want us to think how the book of Revelation is structured for a moment, particularly chapters 19 through 21. Okay? Revelation 19, 11 through 19, talk about the, the Christ coming back on the horse and you know, pouring out his wrath and the, the wine press of God's wrath is, is the fierce wrath of God being poured out from him and he's judging the world with the, by the sword of his mouth that is his word and so on. And uh, I believe that's speaking about the physical return of Christ in Revelation chapter 19. The emphasis of this vision is on the coming of Christ as the conqueror. He's pictured as riding on a white horse like a warrior with his army behind him, behind him the, the, his saints. He will smite the nations with his word, as described in Revelation 19. Now, if this passage is not speaking about the physical return of Christ, then the book of Revelation does not speak of it at all. Okay, some people challenge, say, no, chapter 19 is not the physical coming of Christ. The, the, it, the, the chapter 19 is the development of the New Testament, is the closing of the canon, is that's how the word, world is being judged even now by the word of God. So, and, and, and that's fine if, uh, if, you, if you don't want Revelation to include the coming, the physical coming of Christ. But you need to be aware of that. If chapter 19 is not the physical coming of Christ, then Revelation does not speak of the physical coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? I do believe it is the coming of Jesus Christ. And then I think that chapters 20 and 21 are a commentary on what Revelation 19 teaches. So 19 speaks of the coming of Christ, of judgment, and so on, in, in big, big picture. And then 20 and 21 now drills down and, and describes how that's going to happen. Much like we, in Genesis, we have Genesis 1, telling us the story of the whole creation. Well, Genesis 1, 1 tells us the story of the whole creation. Then Genesis 1, 2, through the end, drills that. And then Genesis 2 drills even further down into one aspect of creation, the creation of humanity. That's, kind of, that's how I think Revelation 19 relates to 20 and 21. So these chapters are not sequential in time, but they are parallel. And we find evidence of that being the structure of the whole book of Revelation, where you know we have the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, even though they are written one chapter after another, in time, they are happening concurrently. It wasn't, it's not like the seven seals happen and then the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. These things are happening concurrently with the sevens all being the coming of Jesus Christ, what's described in Revelation 19. So we have this recurring... It used to be a good illustration, it's not anymore. It's like a, using a typewriter, where you get the end of a line, you return to the beginning of the line and you start writing again and in return uh, that's the idea here these things are happening concurrently in the book of Revelation and the crux of the matter are verses 4 and 5 so let's read verses 4 and 5 and I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands 
and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So that's really uh, where the questions come here. How did they come to life? I don't know if you noticed the came to life is mentioned twice. Or they lived. A better way to translate that is came to life. I don't know if you noticed that in verses 4 and 5 that's mentioned twice. One referring to the righteous and one's referring to the unrighteous. And this guy might be getting a little too technical for some of us who went to a wedding all the way in Vancouver last night and came back like in the wee hours of the morning. So if I'm not making sense to you, it's not you. <laughs> I'm telling you right now. Um, in, in the King, New King James, which is I'm reading here, the end of verse 4 reads, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I forgot to check, to check the ESV. Does anybody have the ESV that can read around to the end of verse 4? Yes, Jim. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Okay, thank you. They came to life is a much better translation. That's what, what the, uh, the word there means, is they came to life. The question is, how did they come to life? Spiritually or physically? We, that has to be decided, right? No matter what your position, you have to decide what that means. That first came to life. Is that f- spiritual or physical? Generally, all millennialists and post-millennialists see that first came to life as a spiritual resurrection. And the second came to life, just a few words later, as a physical resurrection. Right? So, and I, I, I'll try to show next week why I think there are issues with trying to make those into two different um, ways to understand the very same word in the very same tense with the very same number. Those that know grammar might know what I'm talking about here. The same voice, same tense, same number, uh, same mood and everything. They're just 16 words apart. With that, how do you go? With that cliffhanger, of grammatical no majesty we'll stop and ask if there's any questions then we'll pray and be dismissed Jerry? no, no? Or, just, just checking just checking it's like an auction man you move you have to have a question huh? Doug do all um, BP pastors subscribe to that no no so our the text of the confession says that um, a premillennial understanding of the return of Christ, that the Bible may teach a premillennial return of Christ. So instead of uh, excluding other positions, it's designed to include historic premillennialism. Uh, the, the goal of the amendment wasn't to create, was to create liberty of eschatology instead of to forbid it. Because, because historically, historic premillennialism were being shunned and discriminated against. So our forefathers decided, let's make sure that all orthodox positions are able to be present. Now, there's a period of that history that that wasn't honored, but that's the, currently that's the view, that, that, that the original position of our church is what's honored in our denomination. Right? Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed.
Father in heaven, thank you that you're good to us. We thank you that Christ is coming back, regardless of our position on that. And we're looking forward to that day in which we're going to be completely united to him, body and soul, for asking in Jesus' name. Amen.